0: Welcome to The Scientist Speaks, a new podcast produced by the Scientist Creative Services team. Our podcast is by scientists and for scientists. Once a month, we will bring you the stories behind newsworthy molecular biology research. In this month's episode, we explore the neural mechanisms behind birdsong and what they tell us about human vocal learning and speech deficits in diseases such as autism spectrum disorder. Nikki Spahitch, science editor on the Scientist creative services team, spoke with Stephanie White, Professor of Integrative Biology and Physiology at the University of California, Los Angeles, to learn more.
1: One thing that sets humans apart from our great ape cousins is our ability to speak. Speech is incredibly complex. In the human brain, our thoughts are translated into language, which is transmitted via muscle commands sent to the vocal tract. As the vocal tract changes shape, the air moving through it creates specific sounds that a listener hears and interprets. The secrets behind how we learn this amazing talent have interested scientists for more than 100 years. When we observe birds in the wild, it's hard to imagine ourselves in their shoes. Or feathers. While it may be hard to relate to flying and laying eggs, we have one key thing in common, how we communicate.
2: All of our 9,000 species of birds have innate calls, like begging calls that uh, the little chicks make in order to get fed or attention. One wouldn't want to have to learn those types of calls, just like a human baby doesn't want to have to learn to cry in order to get the attention that it needs. So... All birds make lots of different kinds of sounds that serve purposes of contact, like here I am, where are you? Or distress calls or alarm calls. But on top of that, about half of the songbird species learn an additional vocalization that can be used for potentially for courtship or for territorial defense. Um, And they learn this through uh, kind of trial and error practice, um, much like humans do when they're learning to speak.
1: Stephanie White studies the neural basis of socially learned vocal communication. She uses zebra finches as a model to better understand the human brain.
2: These are just lovely creatures to have in the laboratory and to interact with and to hear. And they are telling us just so much about these fascinating questions of interspecies communication. And uh, sometimes we feel like maybe there's intra and interspecies communication.
1: Male zebra finches sing to court females. Surprisingly, they learn their songs using methods similar to humans learning speech. This form of social communication is rare in the animal kingdom and is an example of convergent evolution between the two species, where separate evolutionary processes lead to two distinct groups developing similar mechanisms. Understanding what happens in the songbird brain, both during learning and performing, gives insight into human speech. Dr. White hopes to better understand both normal communication and how speech and learning breaks down in human disorders such as autism spectrum disorder. Like humans learning a language, songbirds don't learn songs on their own. They must receive some instruction from a tutor, which, in the wild, is often apparent.
2: If you're trying to learn a language, you know how much you have to uh, rehearse and repeat and retry again. So it's an iterative form of learning that happens naturally in both songbirds and humans and in a few other animal groups. But it's really quite rare as far as we know.
1: To understand why vocal tutors are important for song learning, Dr. White assigns nestling zebra finches to tutors from a different species and determines the impact of this change on the songs they ultimately
2: produce. In fact, if you deprive a songbird of certain species, such as a zebra finch, of access to an appropriate tutor, as in another zebra finch, and instead give it a related uh, songbird, such as a Bengalese finch, the zebra finch will actually learn the many aspects of the Bengalese finch's song. So um, these cross-fostering experiments are actually great scientific tools for trying to discern whether a species is or is not capable of learning a new vocalization.
1: Bird song is a stereotypical pattern of repeated syllables or song motifs, separated by short silent gaps. Researchers detect these vocalizations by analyzing spectrograms, visual representations of the change in audio frequency over time. Using this method, auditory motifs become visible, and scientists can compare the spectrograms
2: of different birds. A songbird tutored by another species uh, can get pretty good uh, at matching, but there are some constraints. The zebra finch can learn the different notes of the bengalese finch, but it isn't able to put them together in the exact same order or sequencing.
1: So, a zebra finch tutored by another zebra finch will produce similar motifs in the same sequence as its tutor. While a zebra finch tutored or cross-fostered by a Bengalese finch will form a song with different characteristics. The cross-fostered bird song... will not match either that of the Benglis finch or members of its own species. These studies highlight why tutoring is important for ultimately communicating with your own species. However, young birds lacking an instructor can still find ways to communicate. Because the isolated bird can hear itself, It learns to control its own voice, even when it doesn't have an example to follow. Unfortunately, the songs, called isolates, developed by isolated birds, aren't often appreciated by other finches. It's like a human trying to learn a musical instrument without taking lessons. They would figure something out. Eventually.
2: So if it's a sexually dimorphic species for a young bird, a male bird is learning uh, to create a beautiful courtship song to enchant a female bird, but he never gets a tutor, um, then he'll cobble together an isolate song that has some components that sort of sound whiny. And a female, uh, if she has a choice between that male and a male that was normally tutored, shall prefer the normal song.
1: To properly accomplish speech or song, an individual's brain must learn vocalizations and execute them properly using vocal muscles, or the muscles of phonation. Human and songbird brains have striking similarities in the regions devoted to communication, similarities we do not share with non-human primates.
2: There do appear to be connections from cortical regions, of the bird brain and the human brain that go directly onto motor neurons or premotor neurons that are going to control the motor neurons that innervate the muscles of phonation. Um, And that may be an anatomical hallmark of vocal learning species.
1: When one hears a sound, like their own voice, their vocal cords and muscles of phonation in the larynx and the tongue fine-tune the movements required to recreate or tweak the sounds. This is what happens when a songbird practices its song. The vocal learning portions of the songbird and human cerebral cortex are not only anatomically similar, but they also show similar patterns of gene expression. The first evidence of the genetics behind human speech and vocal learning came from research on the KE family a British family with a severe speech disorder called developmental verbal dyspraxia that spans multiple generations. Affected members of the family often have difficulty moving certain facial muscles, severe stuttering, difficulty pronouncing consonants, and have limited vocabularies. Researchers scanned the affected individuals and found both underactive brain regions and underactive motor neurons that control the face and mouth. Chromosomal mapping experiments in the early 2000s determined that the cause of the KE family's vocal deficits was an autosomal-dominant allele encoding a novel protein in the forkhead box group of transcription factors. This gene, located on human chromosome 7, called FOXP2, is a master regulator. It controls the transcription of at least 116 genes, according to a 2009 study by the Geshwin Group at UCLA. The mutation found in the KE family decreases FOXP2's crucial DNA-binding ability and, therefore, its ability to accurately regulate its target genes. Even though FOXP2 is best known for its role in speech and language, it is expressed throughout the body in most vertebrates.
2: It's a master regulator of a lot of things. And what's surprising is that the KE family does so well when they have a mutant copy of this transcription factor. So I imagine that some other molecules are stepping in to help counteract the deficit or the mutation in FOXP2.
1: The zebra-finch version of the FOXP2 gene is 98% identical to the human one. Studies in songbirds and mice suggest that it's not only important for motor control, but it also plays a role in neural circuit plasticity, allowing the brain to adapt and change with new life experiences. Dr. White's team first looked at Fox P2 in a mysterious region in the bird brain called Area X, a specialized subregion of the songbird basal ganglia dedicated to vocal learning and maintenance.
2: In humans with this mutation, they have it from conception and they have it throughout their body. Whereas in the songbird, we've been really focusing in on just the role of Fox P2 in the song control regions of the brain. When a bird wakes up in the morning and starts singing, the bird itself knocks down its own levels of FOXP2 in the brain without any experimental intervention. It's just the act of morning singing. Slowly, the levels of this transcription factor decline as the bird practices.
1: Dr. White's team found that FOXP2 transcription decreased with the amount of undirected singing singing for practice rather than for performing for a potential mate. Researchers think that undirected singing is important for learning in young birds and song maintenance in
2: adults. I can't teach you how to play the violin. Uh, You've got to do it yourself. And the way you do it is by trying over and over and over again. So it's iterative. I like to think that as we're practicing these behaviors, What we're actually doing is much like the songbird practicing its song in the morning over and over again. And we're actually changing levels of master regulators in our brain through our own behavior. And that we have to do this in order to get the neurogenetic state of our brain into the optimal state for actually performing the behavior. So you can imagine as FOXP2 levels decline, in the morning when the bird is singing. It's changing the expression of thousands of other genes, and those genes are going to be different in different parts of the brain.
1: As a master regulator, FOXP2 represses some genes while activating others. FOXP2 downregulation may relieve the repression of molecules related to exploratory vocal behavior. In adult birds, Undirected songs have a degree of variability not seen in directed singing for a mate. Dr. White's team wanted to learn what happens when this down-regulation during undirected singing is blocked, so they overexpressed FOXP2 in Area X. While a zebra finch tutor exhibited the normal song sequence, spectrograms from birds overexpressing FOXP2 show differences within the song motifs and in their order. Because these birds could not modify their songs to effectively mimic their tutor. These findings again suggest that lower levels of FOXP2 expression may lead to vocal variability. While some rare vocal deficits, like those of the KE family, appear to be due to FOXP2 mutation, researchers are expanding their birdsong studies to understand more common human conditions, such as autism spectrum disorder.
2: A core component of autism is uh, social communication deficits. And so since FOXP2 appears to be so uniquely thus far linked to language, it seemed really likely that you would find some kind of version of FOXP2 in the general population that was associated or predisposed to autism.
1: Language impairment is common in autism spectrum disorder.
2: Neurogeneticist
1: Sonia Vernis, now at the Max Planck Institute, first studied a potential connection between autism spectrum disorder and FOXP2, when she was in Simon Fisher's lab at the University of Oxford. Her research team could not find a direct link between the disease and the gene. But because FOXP2 is a master regulator, they quickly realized that mutations in downstream genes may be the true risk factors. They found a likely candidate that FOXP2 directly activated, contactin-associated protein-like 2, or simply CATNAP2. While CATNAP2 had already been associated with autism spectrum disorder, Dr. Vernus found that mutations in the gene also correlated with other language deficits in children. Dr. White now explores how Catnap 2 influences vocal development using her songbirds.
2: The gift of the songbird is that we can hone in specifically on the role that these molecules are playing in the neurons that are dedicated to uh, social communication. So you can really almost get a picture. Um, by looking at the brain. And we did that, and we found that the distribution of CATNAP-2 in the songbird brain was strikingly similar to the distribution that others had found in the human brain. We saw enriched expression of CATNAP-2 in certain regions of the brain, for example, in this motor cortical area that has this privileged direct connection onto the motor neurons that control the muscles of the syrinx, or in humans, the muscles of phonation. And that in the bird, zebra finch, where females don't learn to sing, we see this enriched expression in this motor cortical region in both males and females early in development. And then as the males get older and start learning, expression increases, whereas it falls off in the female. So these types of observations give us clues that, yes, this really is probably having a role in this ability of the male to create these beautiful songs.
1: So what does CATNAP2 do exactly? Do mutations in the gene cause structural or learning deficits that impact speech and song? To find out, Dr. White's team recently knocked down CATNAP2 expression using viral vectors injected into the motor cortical region of the zebra finch's song control circuit. Compared to the Tudor song... Young male birds with this disruption produce songs with different motifs. Next, Dr. White's team looked at knockdown bird brains to see if the lack of CATNAP2 was impacting facial
2: structure, motor control. We saw that these neurons were still projecting to the right target. And we looked at one of the things that CATNAP2 is supposed to do, which is to cluster certain channels to the nodes of Ranvier on the axons. This is how axons are able to quickly propagate nerve impulse. And the clustering looked just fine to us. And finally, we reasoned that birds make unlearned vocalizations that still use this brain structure. And those unlearned vocalizations were just indistinguishable between birds with a knockdown and birds without the knockdown. So we don't think it's a structural deficit. We'd also like to knock down catnap 2 in another part of the song control circuit where it was also enriched. And that part is not thought to be as necessary for the motor aspects, but incredibly important for the learning aspects.
1: She also plans to make new discoveries from old data, thanks to research efforts like the Bird 10,000 Genomes Project, that's generating representative
2: draft genomes from all extant bird species. Another fun thing about the birdsong field is that you can do these experiments and publish your findings, and then you wait. And it turns out that, uh, like many non-traditional model organisms, the genomes of these animals are constantly being updated. And so the first time you run your study, you may only be able to identify 20% or 50% of the genes that you know are actually involved. You just don't know what they are in the bird. And now I'm eager to go back and look at what some of uh, these previously unannotated genes are that were in many of our studies in the past. And Maybe we'll make new discoveries.
1: Surprising as they may be, the parallels between birdsong and human speech are undeniable. How the brain processes and forms vocal communication is complex, to say the least. However, further study of these unconventional lab mates will continue to teach us about birdsong and ourselves. (laughs)
0: Thank you for listening to The Scientist Speaks. This episode was produced by the Scientist Creative Services Team and narrated by Nikki Spahich. Special thanks to Stephanie White and Yoko Yazaki Sugiyama for the Zebra and Bengalese Finch audio clips. Clips of the American Robin were provided by the Bohr Laboratory of Bioacoustics at The Ohio State University. Please join us next month as we discuss genetic strategies to control mosquito-borne diseases such as malaria and dengue fever. To keep up to date with this podcast, please subscribe and follow The Scientist on Facebook and Twitter.